Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I am a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Lindsay Gorrell. But before we get into the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. Here is a review I received on iTunes from Second Gen Cairo, who says, This is essential for helping doctors of chiropractic stay fresh and updated. Well, thank you, Second Gen Cairo, for listening and sharing your feedback. If you'd like to leave an audio review that I might include on a future episode, just connect on Facebook or send me an email. Please consider making a contribution to chiropractic science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website by making a donation. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Lindsay Gorrell. Lindsay Gorrell completed her clinical training in chiropractic and a Master of Research on the Effect of Manual and Instrument Applied Cervical Spine Manipulation on Mechanical Neck Pain at Macquarie University in Australia. She then completed a PhD in musculoskeletal biomechanical and electromyographical responses associated with spinal manipulation under the supervision of Drs. Walter Herzog and Jay Triano at the University of Calgary in Canada. She is now working as an international research fellow at the Bogchrist University Hospital, University of Zurich, Switzerland. Lindsay is also studying a Master of Science in Medical Education at the University of Oxford in England. Lindsay's research interests are centered on investigating the delivery of spinal manipulation, the physiological responses and clinical outcomes occurring in response to spinal manipulation, and the safety of manual therapy. This requires different experimental approaches depending on the research question of interest. Most recently, she has published on the relationship between the amount of strain experienced by the vertebral artery, the 3D movements of the head and neck, and the forces applied by clinicians during cervical spine manipulation and physiological responses to cervical and upper thoracic spinal manipulation as well. Lindsay has maintained part-time clinical practice since graduation. Well, Dr. Goral, uh, thanks so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thanks for having me, Dane. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited uh, to talk about some of these uh, research papers and projects that you've been involved in. They're really exciting. Uh, I think uh, chiropractors everywhere are going to learn a lot from uh, our discussion today. So I'd like to start out with a question I ask everybody who comes on as a guest, and that is, Lindsay, how did you become interested in the first place in becoming a chiropractor? So, so this is a, a bit of a, a long and winding story. Basically, in uh, the third last year of high school in Australia, typically you start selecting subjects for grade 11 and 12, which then puts you on a certain path to uh, target a, a certain theme, I guess, if you like, in university. 
I was lucky enough to be going to a school that did some aptitude testing and had some careers advising at that stage. And everything came out as you should be a medical doctor. And uh, me being me, I was like, oh, no, I don't want to help people who are sick. I kind of would be more interested in helping people who are healthy and have them getting even more healthy and potentially maximizing um, what they're able to do in their life. So I sort of looked around and at that time I, I didn't really know much about chiropractic. My mother was seeing a chiropractor, but I'd never really had much to do with her when she went into the chiropractor. I'd never sort of seen what had happened. And I'm like, well, I'll be a physio. So it seemed to fly. I uh, was lucky enough to get the marks to get into physiotherapy uh, at Melbourne University and the University of Sydney. And being a bit of a travel traveler, I love traveling, I decided to travel from Sydney down to Melbourne and started there. And at at that point, life obviously happens. I ended up back in my hometown, um, having put my physiotherapy studies on hold and needed a job. So, you know, in my head, chiropractic, physio, I didn't know the difference. So I started to work as a chiropractic assistant with the local chiropractor. And to be honest, it was about a week in and I was hooked. I was like, you know what? This is what I want to do. I see people coming in, they're getting such amazing results. The mindset of the practice was very much uh, a similar mindset to how I saw the world and how I wanted to contribute to the world. And the rest they say is history. Went back to Macquarie University, started my chiropractic studies and uh, graduated from Macquarie as a chiropractor. That's awesome. I, I love that, uh, that uh, sort of philosophy that you had too about wanting to get people uh, to maximize their health. I, I think a lot of us that get into chiropractic have that kind of mindset, but uh, just, I love to hear you say that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of like minds out there. It, it's awesome. No yeah. doubt. So w now when it comes to research, we all seem to take a different path to get there. Um, so I'm curious if you could take us from, you're now a chiropractor, you graduated from Macquarie and uh, you're, you're out into practice. How do you get involved in research? And then how do you go from Australia to Canada? So this again is one of those things that life never runs as straight as you think it will. Uh, right up until six months before I graduated as a chiropractor, I was going to be a full-time chiropractor in clinical practice I was already working in a clinical practice. I was going to be purchasing that clinical practice. There was um, a succession plan in place for me to uh, buy into the practice and then start taking over patient numbers. And in our final year at Macquarie, we need to do a year-long research project. And I had never considered research before, but it's a requirement. So away I went. And I was looking at mapping the curriculum um, for the subjects which are in the, or taught in the Masters of Chiropractic to uh, one of the classic Bronfort articles looking at the effectiveness of spinal manipulation for musculoskeletal disorders. And what I was doing was looking at the degree to which the Macquarie uh, Masters curriculum actually taught what the evidence said. Um, so it, it was quite a naive paper. Um, it was my first research project at the time, you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and you think, ah, oh, this, is, this is it. This is kind of, I can do this. 
And about six months before graduation, uh, the head of research at that time tapped me on the shoulder and he said, you know, you seem to be enjoying this and you seem to be doing okay. Would you consider doing a master's of research? And I said, well, what is a master's of research? You know, I'm going to be a chiropractor. That's why I'm here. And Macquarie at that time had just started up a master's of research project. And because of the year long research project that we did in fifth year, we actually got advanced standing into the second year of the degree. So instead of being a two-year degree, it was a little bit over a year, about 14 months or so, um, and that's how I got into it. And as I went through, as you start out in clinic, uh, you've got to build your patient numbers, you're still learning a lot, so you tend to have a little bit of downtime, or I tended to have a little bit of downtime during clinic time, and that really allowed me to block book patients and then free up some time to do my master's. So that's sort of how it all started. Again, about halfway through that, I thought, yeah, I can do this. I love this. I love still thinking academically. Um, So I wasn't ready to be a full-time clinician at that time. So I decided, well, let's, let's take this a step further. Let's look at potentially doing a PhD. At that time, I had a really amazing mentor as my master's supervisor, and he basically sat me down and said, if this is something you want to do, then you need to find the best person in the world or who you think the best person in the world is to do the research with and basically go and learn from the best no matter where they are. Um, So I sort of sat down a little bit and I thought about it and through your master's you're reading a lot of research papers and you're seeing who's uh, producing research in the field that you are looking into and you read a little bit more widely. And for me it was just obvious that I needed to be in Canada. Um, I had an offer from uh, two universities in Australia but I thought, no, for the type of research that I wanted to do, which was biomechanics uh, research, I needed to head over to North America. So I reached out to a couple of different professors, um, was lucky enough to get PhD interviews with three different professors across Canada, and then eventually ended up being accepted into the PhD program at the uh, University of Calgary with uh, Walter. And Walter was always very much an advocate that to make this clinically relevant, I needed to have a chiropractor on my supervisory board. Um, So that's where Jay came in. And Jay really, he's been a heavyweight in biomechanics research, but he's also been a chiropractic clinician for many, many, many years. So we brought him on board and uh, we'll be talking about some of the research a little bit later. So I don't want to give any spoilers, but that's how I ended up from uh, being going to be a full-time chiropractor to into research and then the transition from Australia across to Canada. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I love all the twists and turns <laughs> that it's you took straight. along it's the way. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's. I think it's very important that people hear these kind of things. Uh, you know, s- some people do have more linear paths and then people like you and I tend to have uh, some nonlinear ways to get to, to where we are and, and it's all good. Um, and I guess that's Absolutely. just a testament to how many different ways it can be done. And, and as long as you're having fun, I guess that's the, that's the real uh, good thing about it. So, um, so now, like you said, we're going to be talking about 
several of your papers uh, as you were going through the PhD program. But if you could just fast forward a little bit from that, because we'll get into those, but just talk a little bit about um, where you are now in in uh, Switzerland, how you got there, and uh, and tell us what your your typical day is like. Yeah, so my experience is that there aren't many postdoctoral positions in uh, purely chiropractic faculties globally. There are some, um, but typically, and I don't necessarily identify myself as a chiropractic researcher. I am a manual therapy researcher who has a degree in chiropractic and is practiced as a chiropractor. But I think for me, that's a really important distinction to make that a lot of the physios, especially the musculoskeletal um, physios, so IFOMT members, they do very similar things to us. Um, so really I, I would counsel people against kind of calling themselves chiropractic researchers and realize that there's a lot more common ground out there than what you realize. Um, and for example, University of Calgary, I was in a faculty of kinesiology. I was the only chiropractor there, definitely. Um, I certainly wasn't in a chiropractic department. Um, but I was lucky enough to secure a postdoctoral position in the Department of Chiropractic Medicine at the University of Zurich in Switzerland under the supervision of Professor Petra Schweinhardt. Uh, Petra really wanted to bring me on board to diversify the research portfolio that they have at Bel the Belgrist Hospital, which is where the Department of Chiropractic Medicine is located. She has a very eminent career in uh, pain research and also uh, imaging research. And she was looking at the research that I'd done, the biomechanics, um, looking at EMG, looking at quantifying forces and force time profiles that are applied during spinal manipulation. And she really thinks that that basic science research is part of what the profession needs to move forward. And obviously I agree because that's my passion and that's what I spend my day-to-day -day doing. Um, so that's really how I ended up in Switzerland. Again, the timing was right. Sometimes it is just about the timing and everything falls into place. Yeah, to great. To get to the second part of the question, yep. uh, daily experience. <laughs> no two days are the same in research, definitely. Uh, at the moment, I am a full-time researcher, but definitely teaching into the program at varying levels depending on uh, what is needed at the time. I've been into uh, what I would call skills skills classes, which are teaching um, spinal mobilization, spinal manipulation, the starting of it uh, in third year. We're teaching orthopedic testing. Uh, I've also been giving lectures on the safety of cervical spine manipulation across a number of different uh, years, and then also at the Postgrad Academy. Practice is coming. In Switzerland, uh, it's a little bit different to, for example, Canada or Australia, where you would prove that you have the qualifications to be a chiropractor from your university that you studied at. You would then sit a variable number of what I would call board exams to prove your competence, and then you're accepted and you're able to register and be licensed and practice as a chiropractor. So that's what I needed to do when I moved to Canada. In Switzerland, it's a little bit different because they are on the same level effectively as a medical doctor. Um, so they're controlled, I would say, a lot more tightly. 
So where I'm at at the moment is that all my uh, studies have been approved. They recognize that I am absolutely uh, competent to be a chiropractor, but then I also need to attain a certain level of language skills in order to practice. So at the moment, I am learning German five mornings a week. And once I attain a certain level of language competency, they'll rubber stamp me and I'll be able to practice. So at the moment, practice is on the back burner until I get my German skills a little bit further along than they are now. Wow, that's really fascinating. What's it like uh, learning a new language? As someone, look, I'm not going to say it's easy, but as someone who has, uh, I'm pretty stubborn. So when I decide I want to do something, I, I tend to throw myself at it, uh, heart, mind, and soul. Um, so I'm getting there. I'm getting there. But it's interesting that you go from being very comfortable in a situation and my research, you know, I've been working in research now for a number of years. It's kind of a safe place for me. And then you get thrown into something completely new and completely different that maybe your brain doesn't think like that all the time. Uh, it's certainly given me a new respect for our students coming through and just remembering how hard it is sometimes to suddenly be learning a new language. For them, it's the anatomy and the physiology and all the medical terms. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's been good for me. Yeah, that Wow. Cool. I'm really excited to have you on, Dr. Girl, because uh, you've you've published some some very interesting work uh, on on the biomechanics of uh, spinal manipulation and on safety in general. But I'd like to get your your thoughts. How how would you describe you know what you're interested in? I just want to get your your words out of it. Uh, essentially, I, I I read through your bio, but how do you see what it is you do and what you're interested in? So for me, it's all about the black box. And I'll, I'll, obviously, I'll elaborate on that a little bit. So at the moment, I think we're really, really good at quantifying the force time profile when we deliver spinal manipulation. So the forces that are applied to the patient. Then there's a massive black box of what actually happens to those forces within the body and how those forces are then translated into clinical outcomes. So really for me, I'm really interested in looking at what's happening with the black box of um, translating what we know already into, okay, so how does this from a physiological point of view actually happen? How are we helping patients get better? So a lot of basic science research has been done using uh, animal models and also robots to deliver spinal manipulation-like uh, forces to um, humans increasingly and also, as I said, animals, that we know that there is a relationship there at some level between the preload force, the peak force, the speed of force application, and the duration of the thrust on physiological responses such as uh, EMG responses. We know that. I think that that needs to be brought through more into uh, clinicians delivering spinal manipulation to patients. But I think it's fairly safe to say that from a physiological point of view, something happens when we deliver a spinal manipulation. What's missing is the next link of seeing if there is any uh, direct relationship between the forces, the speed that the force is delivered, and the clinical outcomes. 
So by clinical outcomes here, I'll give a couple of examples. I'm talking increases in range of motion, decreases in pain as two examples. So that's sort of the first interest that I have, which really has been there since my master's. The second is looking at the safety of manual therapy. And for me, that's more specific to cervical spine manipulation. And then again, looking at the force time profile and quantifying the delivery of spinal manipulation and then seeing what that does from a biomechanical perspective to the cervical vertebrae, to the vertebral artery, to the soft tissues of the neck. So they're my, they're my two main passions, I'd say. Well, and that's really helpful because, you know, in reading these papers, I, I get a better understanding of, of where you're coming from and, and where you're probably going to be going as well. But uh, at this point, we can probably shift into talking about these studies and maybe we'll reflect on that black box a little bit that you were talking about uh, after we <laughs> cover some of the data that you've uncovered uh, in these studies. So the the first paper uh, is about the kinematics of the head and associated vertebral artery length changes during high velocity, low amplitude cervical spine manipulation published in chiropractic and manual therapies in uh, June of this year. So I wonder, uh, Dr. Gorl, if you could just uh, walk us through uh, this paper. Yeah, for sure. So this was uh, my main PhD project. So we were looking at using uh, fresh, unembalmed human cardioveric specimens and then instrumenting them with uh, bone pins. So we had used um, three millimeter bone pins, which were inserted into each of the cervical vertebrae, the sternum and the skull. Each of those bone pins had a triad of reflective markers, which we put into a motion capture uh, space, which we were then able to track the 3D movements of the head and the cervical vertebrae relative to the sternum. We then, or well, I then, also dissected away all of the anterolateral structures of the um, neck, including the mandible, in order to, number one, instrument with the bone pins, but also to instrument the vertebral arteries with one to two millimeter piezoelectric ultrasound crystals, which were sutured into the lumen of the vertebral artery. Now, what that allowed me to do is to measure the length changes of the vertebral artery during cervical spine manipulation. So we also measured using a pressure pad the forces that were applied to the cervical spine. Um, so that was also there. But really, I wanted to focus on what was happening kinematically, so the movements of the head and also the vertebral artery length changes um, during cervical spine manipulation. There's been a lot of, and this is quite an emotional topic for a lot of people. Um, I'm lucky, I guess, in that I have data, so I, I don't need to get emotional about it. I just say what the data says. Um, and at this point, we're hoping to continue with this uh, during my time at Switzerland. So they'll definitely, well, I shouldn't say definitely. There's no definites in science, right? I'm very hopeful that we will have more information coming through in the coming years to add more information to this picture that's starting to build up. So what we found was uh, with the application of uh, cervical spine manipulation into either a rotation bias 
or a lateral flexion bias, um, that there were no differences in either the movements of the head or the vertebral artery elongations when we delivered cervical spine manipulation to the upper cervical spine, so C1, C2, or all the way down to the lowest, so C3 through C7. For this, we had three male cartoveric donors. Um, as with all biomechanics research, you instrument as carefully as possible, um, but sometimes things happen and you have missing data. Um, so this is where the data was really good for these three uh, donors. And in the next paper that we talk about, you'll see that I was able to include more of the donors. And what we then did was applied the manipulation. We had three different clinicians of varying experience level. I was definitely the least experienced with uh, six to seven years, depending on um, when I was actually delivering the manipulations. But we had clinicians who have also delivered cervical spine manipulation to cadavers before and up to sort of 25 years of experience. So it was really a variable spread, which is what we see in clinic. So I think that that's, that's important to note as well, that these weren't all super, super experienced clinicians. Then we measured the elongation of the uh, vertebral artery, and we compared that to um, a reference position, which was the head lying on the gurney, similar to how the head would lie on the table of a treatment table, for example. Really, the movements of the head and the elongation of the vertebral artery during the manipulation itself were quite small. So this had never been done before. The we had well Piper et al. about ten years ago had measured the measure had measured the movement of the head um, during passive ranges of motion, but hadn't reported what had actually happened in the vertebral artery and the movement of the head during cervical spine manipulation. So really, we had really, really small movements and also quite small vertebral artery elongations, except for the V3 segment. So consistently, that V3 segment of the vertebral artery, which is the vulnerable segment when you're looking at vertebral artery dissection, irrespective of the cause, whether it was someone turning their head in a car, whether it was a whiplash um, injury during a car accident, whether it was someone who went to the hairdresser and had their head back in an extended position and then experienced a dissection. So again, still we had small, relatively small movements and relatively small elongations, but I think it's important that we do acknowledge that these were consistently larger in that vulnerable V3 segment. Um, important piece of information that I haven't given yet is that V3 segment corresponds to the C1, C2 level. Okay. So, yeah, that's a bit of a heads up on data that will be coming out at some point soon. We actually see larger movements and larger vertebral artery elongations during pre-positioning of the head than you do during the thrust. So I don't want to say too much about that, but uh, if you're wanting to limit the elongation of the vertebral artery, potentially ensuring that you have a nice tight pre-positioning could be the best way to do that. Got it. Yeah, that, I mean, I guess that some of that just, 
make sense anatomically, uh, thinking about how the vertebral artery, you know, courses through the uh, transverse uh, foramen. And then also the C1, C2 kind of makes sense as well as it uh, makes its way uh, from the transverse foramen up through and uh, into the uh, the um, um, brainstem, uh, you know, uh, arterial supply. So there, there is just more of a uh, twist and turn, we'll say there. And then when applying head rotation, that would seem to be a a significant change dynamically for for the artery. So, but what I I do find it really interesting that you didn't find um, much of a difference uh, uh, at all. And then when I was looking at Table Four, I did want to ask this, and just perhaps you've already given me the answer to it, but I just want to clarify. Uh, when I was looking at table four, it was talking about the differences in vertebral artery length change between adjacent cervical spine levels. And although none of them are significant, the C1, C2 approaches significance. And I know statisticians would probably uh, be upset for me even raising the question, but it was at a P, P level of 0.055. None of the other ones were really close to significance, as I recall. But this one was getting close. Um so I, I, I'm just curious what your what your thought was on that. Is is that what you were alluding to? That there were some differences there, some small differences. Yeah, absolutely. So if we look anatomically at what C1 C2 joint is designed to do, it's designed to rotate. Um, I think it's approximately 45 degrees of neck rotation can occur at that C1 C2 level. So approximately half of what we're able to get in a healthy neck, at human neck. And I think it, there is enough research base out there starting to build that suggests that the elongation of the vertebral artery is greatest with rotation movements, whether that's, a, you know, an active rotation that the patient turns their head themselves or whether that's um, a passive rotation during cervical spine manipulation or even during a passive range of motion. So really I think that as the research moves forward, and we have more uh, numbers, so instead of three cadavers, we're able to include more, that potentially that will achieve statistical significance, which, of course, doesn't necessarily mean clinical relevance. Um, but in this instance, I, I have a hunch that absolutely it does. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let's, let's move on to the next paper then. And this is uh, vertebral arteries do not experience tensile force during Manual Cervical Spine Manipulation Applied to Human Cadavers. And this was published in uh, Journal of Manual and Manipulative Therapy uh, just here really recently, 2022 of November. So, Lindsay, if you could walk us through this paper, then tell us how this also relates to the previous kinematic paper. Yeah, for sure. So this was... Um Basically, it was exactly the same project that we reported on in the first paper that we discussed, except once all of the spinal manipulations had been delivered by uh, the clinicians, once the T CT scanning had been done, I then took the donors back down to the anatomy lab and using blunt dissection, I excised the vertebral arteries out of the transverse foramen with the piezoelectric uh, ultrasound crystals still attached 
We then took the arteries and placed them into a materials testing system. So they were uh, loaded up vertically. And what we then did was we applied uh, data, and this is data that hasn't been published, we applied a 1,000 cycles of 6% elongation from the neutral position or the neutral length that the vessel was in the donor, so in the human prior to cervical spine manipulation, to see if there would be any fatigue uh, damage which occurred during those 1,000 continuous cycles. After that, we then applied a stretch at a similar rate to what cervical spine manipulation is delivered until the artery had a frank failure. So until there was basically a tear in the vessel and the amount of tensile force that it was uh, carrying was decreasing. So exactly the same cohort, except for this study, I was able to include more of the cadavers because now we're not looking at the kinematics, we're just looking at the vertebral artery length changes. And at this point, I want to point out and be very um, obvious about why I've been saying length changes and elongation. So really, the reason I've been saying elongation is that during cervical spine manipulation, the vessels never actually experienced longitudinal or tensile force. I'll just let that sit for a second because I think that it's counterintuitive when a lot of the literature suggests that there is a stretch on the vessel during cervical spine manipulation, that that isn't necessarily happening. So by stretch, I mean longitudinal force. I want everyone to think uh, the anatomy of the region. So you've got the vertebral artery uh, coming off the subclavian artery, traveling through transverse foramen of C6 through C1. From C6 through C2, it's usually a fairly vertical course through the transverse foramen. Then, as you mentioned before, it dog legs around um, from C2 around the posterior um, aspect of the atlas before it travels sort of back and vertically into the transverse foramen. Uh, sorry, the foramen magnum, depending on um, the human, everyone has slight anatomical variation, but that's the general course. Now, a lot of people might think that the vertebral artery actually lies straight between each of the transverse foramen, and that's not actually what we see. What we see is that there is a little bit of a squiggle, if you like. There's redundancy in the vessel similar to if you took a rubber band and instead of pulling it out straight, you actually took the tension off and you let there be a bit of a bend or a wave in the elastic band. So between each of the tether points with the adjacent transverse foramen, we actually have a vessel which is redundant. And by redundant, I mean that it is not at its uh, stretch length yet. So that means when we move the neck, there's actually a variable amount of elongation that can occur in that vessel before it actually experiences longitudinal force, before it is even at a zero Newton or 0 0.0001 Newton stretch. So once I'd excised the vessels out of the uh, transverse foramen, we put them into the mechanical testing machine we then stretch the vessels to where they experience 0.1 Newton of force, which we then determined as first force. So now we do have longitudinal or tensile force. And on average, 
we found that uh, each vessel was elongated about 33.5% from its neutral or in situ length to where it experienced first force. So when we have cervical spine manipulations that are on average, and this is a high average here, sort of imparting a 6% elongation from that in situ position, and then before they even experience any force, longitudinal force, they have to be stretched 33.5% from that in situ position. That's giving a very different picture or telling a very different story from what a lot of the literature has suggested because it's suggesting that there is actually no longitudinal force on those vessels during cervical spine manipulation. On top of that, we then obviously, as I said, stretch the vessels until where they actually frank ruptured, and that was on average uh, 50, about 51% from the in situ position, which is quite a bit more than the first force length, which is exceedingly more than the strain or the elongation that's experienced during cervical spine manipulation. So important to note here that these were all the same cadavers. So we're using exactly the same vessels during the cervical spine manipulations, during the first force testing, during the mechanical um, failure testing and that the piezoelectric ultrasound crystals were the exact same ones throughout all of these. I also want to point out that any time you put a small cut into a vessel to suture an ultrasound crystal into it, you're damaging the mechanical integrity of that vessel. And obviously I was super, super careful to disrupt the vessel as little as I possibly could, but as soon as you put a cut into those collagen fibres, you're going to be ensuring that they aren't able to carry as much force as they usually would if they hadn't been damaged. So really my hunch is that these vessels were, you know, some of them had eight ultrasound crystals, so eight holes in them effectively, that if and when the technology is good enough to be able to perform similar testing without mechanically disrupting the vessel, we're going to see much, much higher elongations to both first force and mechanical failure. So really what we see in this paper is a worst case scenario when you're thinking about what would happen in a clinical situation during a cervical spine manipulation and how much those vessels would be able to elongate before they experienced either force or when they failed. Yeah, um, I think those are really great uh points uh especially the the part about you know that by necessity you because of limitations in technology you had to you had to make a cut uh damage to the to the vessel nonetheless um uh there are some really i i think um important points from basic science and and also i think we can certainly start to ponder the clinical translation of this information. So I want to get from, from you, what you think are perhaps uh, maybe a, a couple of the most important findings from the paper. And then uh, if you wouldn't mind taking a, uh, you already talked a little bit about some of the 
possible clinical translation, but I'd like to get uh, just maybe a little bit more of a clinical perspective, even though this, you know, this study wasn't a clinical um, study per se, but uh, wouldn't mind getting your perspective on that. Yeah, so so for me, uh, a lot of people say that the limitations of this this study are that it's basic science, that there are tissues missing, that I've disrupted the vessel, that I'm using older um, older donors, which is what unfortunately is available to us. I actually think that these are all absolute strengths of the study because they provide a worst case scenario that. Uh, Basically, everything would be better in clinic. The vessels would be whole and they wouldn't be damaged. Any of the soft tissues would obviously still be there, which would provide um, some, and we don't know how much this occurs, but some ability to actually absorb the forces that are applied into the cervical spine. Um, There's only been one study published on this, but definitely it showed that cadavers or the cervical spine of cadavers are manipulated more forcefully and more quickly than a chiropractor delivering a cervical spine manipulation in clinic. Um, There's a couple of reasons for that probably that the authors go into. Number one is that the tissue quality isn't exactly the same and there's also uh, not necessarily the same um, comfort considerations as when you have a patient on the table in front of you, maybe they have um, some muscle guarding, which is then uh, meaning that you're maybe not applying the manipulation the same as you would in the cadaver. So really, I think the biggest thing for clinicians is when they're reading this is that this is a worst case scenario. So Anything that you're applying clinically in a human being that has not been instrumented, that is providing you with that feedback, that means that you're um, possibly delivering the manipulation with less speed, well, more speed probably, but definitely less force in some instances, that you're not actually potentially even getting to the 6% elongation of the vessel, which would then mean that you're even safer or safer, I use that in inverted commas, since you can't see me doing it in the air. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. so for me, the clinical relevance is, yeah, it's basic science, but it's the best we've got right now. This will keep coming through. And I think the message so far from all of the studies that have been investigating this is congruent and on point to suggest that maybe it isn't a stretch mechanism that is resulting in a vertebral artery dissection. Maybe there's something else going on, whether that's a rotational component or it's um, dislodging an embolus. I don't know. I haven't researched these things yet. Yeah, I I clearly share the same perspective there. After reading through the abstract, you, you must wonder at that point, is there something else that we're not measuring that uh, might be related to the to these clinical appearances, and then my mind goes to what about you know we've heard in the literature risk risk factors being things like collagen disorders, for example, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and that would be really interesting to to get some cadavers that you know you you know that somebody has a particular condition and how they may respond compared to others. Um, just thinking off the top of my head there, but um, I did I did want to ask you about. Um, another part of the the paper, which was the 
the uh, the values there for the elongation to first force occurrence and also to failure, it seemed like there was a wide, wide range, which you would expect that uh, with anything biological. Um, and then a uh, follow-up to that, I guess, is uh, were the vertebral arteries with the least elongation to first force occurrence also the ones to first failure, or was there some sort of mixture going on? Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, all results, are, well, in this type of research are variable. And I think that comes from two places. I think, first of all, we know that chiropractors or manual therapists will deliver spinal manipulation variably. Um, so they tend to be quite consistent within themselves, but then they will differ from their colleagues. And so that's one source of the variability in, in my opinion. The second, as you said, is each person varies. So anatomically, there may be a little bit more or a little bit less of that wavy redundancy of the vessel, um, which is able to be elongated before it achieves um, or experiences longitudinal strain. So in this study, we delivered 518 cervical spine manipulations. And as I mentioned in the discussion section of the paper, in a single vessel, in two occasions, length of the manipulative thrust, which was, I think, about 5.5%, exceeded that vessel's length change at the first force occurrence, which I think was about 4.5%. And then from memory, I should have looked up these numbers so I had them ready to go. But from memory, the failure force from the in-situ position for that vessel was about 15 or 16%. So really, it's on two instances across 518 cervical spine manipulations did that occur. Um, so for me, the variability is actually good because it's making it more clinically relevant that we have more than one chiropractor delivering the manipulations and that we have more than one uh, donor, which is receiving the manipulations, which is uh, where your anatomic variation across different patients comes in. Uh, so really, yeah, Least elongation to first force occurrence were usually the first to fail, but really that was only an issue, if you want to call it an issue, on two of 518 cervical spine manipulations. Got it. Got it. I, I appreciate you going through that. It's just one of the things that I'm thinking about in my head as I'm reading through through the paper. So appreciate you, you uh, mentioning that. Well, let's get on. We've got two other papers, uh, if we have time to go through them. Uh, the, the next paper is about differences in force time parameters and EMG characteristics of high-velocity, low-amplitude manipulation. And this is the really interesting part, following another manipulation. Mm -hmm. So two in succession. Yeah. I, I'm just fascinated by this one as well as the others. Uh, so this is published in Chiropractic and Manual Therapies. Uh, can you tell us about this one? So my both hands are up full disclosure that this uh, data analysis was fully opportunistic that as we spoke about earlier, research paths aren't necessarily always straight and true. And what I had is we had designed a set of experiments in both uh, asymptomatic people who were naive to spinal manipulation mostly and then in symptomatic neck pain patients. And we had a clinician 
who was delivering the manipulations, very experienced, over 30 years' experience. And my instructions to the clinician were to deliver a clinically relevant cervical spine manipulation. And so we start testing, and the first couple of participants are coming through. And true to form, the practitioner was spot on that in a couple of instances where he didn't achieve what he thought was a clinically relevant manipulation, and for him that was the uh, presence or absence of uh, cavitation, he immediately delivered a second manipulation. And, of course, I hadn't necessarily thought of that, and I thought, isn't this going to be super interesting to compare biomechanically what was occurring and what was different between the first thrust and the second thrust, and to then see if that resulted in any differences in the EMG output of the 16 muscles that we were uh, measuring as a result of the difference potentially between the force time parameters of the first and second thrust. And as it turned out, it uh, there actually was a difference in the EMG responses uh, in the second thrust compared to the first Typically, second thrusts were delivered a little bit more forcefully uh, and a little bit more quickly on average to both the cervical spine and the upper thoracic spine as well. And that typically resulted in a greater EMG response um, that occurred more quickly uh, in the symptomatic participants, but not in the asymptomatic participants, which was also interesting. So again, completely opportunistic that it's something that came out of data collection that actually turned out to be a really interesting result and a, a, I think a really important paper um, for clinicians to know that some of them out there are applying second thrusts or potentially even third thrusts and that is resulting in a greater input and then output into the central nervous system. Yeah, well, I'll just give a little perspective from my point of view. I read this paper and I had to reread the title actually a couple of times because I'm like, wait a second, I guess I do that. Exactly. <laughs> you know, right. I don't, I don't do even it. think we I do. do, you know, I didn't even think I did that. And then I thought, you know what? Sometimes I think I do a third impulse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then I started just cognitively thinking about it uh, periodically, like, oh yeah, I just found that I did that. <laughs> Why do I do Absolutely. that? And then when I really thought about it on those patients, I thought, well, it, you know, I, at least in my own mind, I was kind of thinking, well, I'm going to go slow. So I'm going to sort of ramp up the force a little bit. Um, I don't know if I actually was thinking of it that way, but I think that's the way it just progressed. So it's interesting that there was this clinically relevant phenomenon that was going on and oh. you just kind of hap happened on it. There was a, a physiological response. I wouldn't call it a clinically relevant outcome necessarily because in this study we were only measuring the EMG responses. We weren't measuring, for example, pressure pain thresholds or asking um, participant to uh, do range of motion or anything like that. That I got study's it. Yeah. coming. I got it. That study's coming. I guess yeah. what I was thinking to the, to the practitioner, they thought it was uh, relevant. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. Yeah, no, absolutely true. Yep. Got it. But yes, I totally understand. Yeah, you didn't measure. I, I get that. Yeah, totally. So um, how many chiropractors or manual therapists do you think do this? 
So it's interesting, uh, a lot more, I think, than we'll admit that they do. I think um, there's a, several papers out there suggesting that cavitation has no relationship to physiological responses, and certainly that is um, that that is the data that I have as well. Really, I would argue that it's the force and the speed of force application that is uh, really relevant in uh, physiological EMG responses as opposed to the cavitation. I don't think that there is any relationship between the cavitation and an EMG response. But a lot of people are um, hesitant, I think, to admit that they would perform a double thrust or even a triple thrust onto a patient because there's a, a pressure to feel like we're being extremely specific and that we're all really skilled manipulation technicians and that we get it right the first time and then there's no need to perform a second thrust. But I think the reality is that more of us are doing it than, than would put their hand up for it. Yeah, I I I like that. I I also think, uh, at least from my perspective, and I may I may have this wrong, but my introspection of what I think I'm doing after I've sort of reanalyzed it uh, is that I I think I I just start light with the force just to gauge maybe what their res the person's response is, and then uh, and then ramp it up uh, as I mentioned before. But you know that that's I don't know. Uh, but I, I think that may be what I'm doing. We need to get a pressure pad to you, and then we can measure it. <laughs> Very good. I like, I like the default to measurement. We, we should, <laughs> we should always let's let's quantify it, and then we can tell you exactly what you're doing. Right? Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, that's great. Well, let's let's talk about another paper here, and this this gets to your other interest, which actually deals uh, with safety directly. And uh, this was uh, a systematic review you had done on the reporting of adverse events following spinal manipulation uh, in randomized clinical trials, uh, systematic review. And this was published uh, in Spine Journal 2016. So I wonder if you could uh, take us through, through this paper. Yeah, so this was a super interesting paper. Um, for me to pull it through, this was the first systematic review that I'd done, so I learned a lot, but I was absolutely horrified at the results that we ultimately ended up reporting. So we went through, we did a literature review um, of two different databases, the Pedro database and then the Cochrane Central Register or Central um, database, and we were looking for randomized clinical trials that involve spinal manipulation therapy. So it didn't matter where it was applied as long as it was applied to the, the spine. And what we were looking to do was to actually go through and quantify how many of these studies were reporting on adverse events. Then we took it a step further and we were looking at not only how many studies were reporting, but when they were published. And we arbitrarily, or not so arbitrarily, um, divided it into pre-consort and post-consort. And what consort is, is it is, um, I guess, a directive or a guideline for what you should be reporting when you are writing up a, well, number one, when you're designing, but then also number two, when you're writing up a manuscript to report on the results of a randomized clinical trial. So it goes through and it says what you should 
have in the title, what you should include in the abstract, in the introduction, specifically in the method section, the results section, and so on and so forth. The specific adverse events uh, extension, if you like, or harms extension was published in 2004. And my understanding from correspondence with the authors is that there is a new extension that should be forthcoming, hopefully in 2023. So that will be updated, um, which definitely after 20 odd years, it needs to be. So that's sort of the benchmark. You'd think that once that paper was published and people had a clear guideline of what they should be reporting and where they should be reporting it in terms of adverse events or harms, that that would improve the reporting of adverse events in these manuscripts. And we actually did find that. So of the 368 articles that we included in the review, only about 38% of those articles actually reported on adverse events. But those that were reported post-consort did report um, more on adverse events than those occurring before the consort guideline came out. Um, really, 38% is horrifying. Uh, we've recently gone through and updated this study, which it's currently in peer review, and we've extended the search to uh, more databases and then also more professions, so not just chiropractors and osteopaths. And what we've found is that approximately 61% of articles with the same inclusion-exclusion criteria now are reporting on adverse events. But that's still only just over half, right? So while we've improved from about 40% to 60%, which is huge, especially over a five- or six-year period, it's still not where it needs to be. Um, there's a lot of discussion in the literature as to why that is, and a lot of that has centred on people not being sure about the nomenclature that they should use, whether they should be calling it HARMS because that's what the HARMS consort guideline says to use, whether they should be calling it an adverse event or an adverse effect or a side effect, um, what classification system they should be using. So I think that there are a number of different studies which are being conducted right now and again, results are coming out soon, hopefully in 2023, um, from a, a consortium that I've been working with to create a standardized definition and adverse event classification system for spinal and peripheral joint manipulation and mobilization. But until we all get on the same page and we're all using the same words for such things, I think that it's hard for us to compare different clinical trials and the adverse events which are potentially occurring in different clinical trials across the board. So really we can't pull the data, which means that we can't really systematically look at it and, for example, perform a meta-analysis, which is a real shame because we're publishing an increasing number of randomised clinical trials, right, and we want to be getting as much information not only about the benefits of spinal manipulation and mobilization, but also the potential safety consequences or safety considerations that need to be taken into account when performing a risk-benefit analysis for treatment delivery to a patient that's sitting in front of you or standing in front of you. 
Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate you going through that. This is such an important topic. And, uh, you know, my eyes were opened quite a bit after, you know, reading through this paper. One of the things that I'll just give a ref- my own reflection on it, after reading the consort statement, the consort statement is not terribly long, uh, from what I recall. Um, and then they reference that 2004 paper by John Ian Edis. So I checked out that paper. That paper is very detailed. I mean, yep. there is basically, you know, it talks about harm in every, every section of the manuscript from your intro to through how you're going to handle the harm statistically. Um, I think we're a heck of a long way from that uh, level of analysis. Like you say, basically only 64% even talking about harms uh, at this point. So we've got a long ways to go. And what do they say? 17 years for things to, to come into fruition. Well, that paper was 2004. I guess we're at least (laughs) edging up, uh, on, on these recommendations, but, um, I don't know what, so the, the papers that, that you reviewed in, in this paper, we just talked about on the, and your most current one, uh, what are the statements kind of look like? Are they just, are they just a sentence that says something about, we didn't see any harm or like how detailed, like how many actually got into the depth of what that 2004 paper was suggesting? I'm just curious. So I wouldn't be comfortable putting a a figure on it right now, a number. I don't have those off the top of my head, but definitely there, there were some that I would give a tick, a tick of approval if, if I was asked to, to say that they, they did reach the threshold of what should be reported in, in a paper, basically in a randomized clinical trial report. Um, Most of them did not. Most of them, it's exactly as you said, there were no adverse events experienced by any participants in this uh, study, which if they haven't provided a definition of what an adverse event is in the methods section, the reader really isn't able to judge that because different authors might consider, for example, uh, increased soreness after spinal manipulation as an adverse event, an expected and benign adverse event, but still an adverse event, versus other authors might only consider, for example, serious adverse events that resulted in a hospitalization or escalation up to a data safety management board or something like that. So until we actually know what the authors mean by adverse event, it's impossible for the reader to then put that sentence in context of what does that actually mean and how do I compare that against this second randomised clinical trial that I've got, which seems to be a similar treatment, similar um, outcomes in effectiveness, but then they report 20 adverse events. But I'm looking through and they don't seem so, you know, there might be muscle soreness, increased tiredness, something like that. But then there's this study, which is quite similar, and they say no adverse events. Yeah, I think you so, hit the nail on the head there, Lindsay. Absolutely. Yeah. It comes down to the definition. Um, and I, I guess just getting this out, uh, getting this important message out to people who are conducting trials, reading the literature. Do you have any sense, and we're talking about manual therapy here, but do you have any sense 
of how pervasive uh, this is in other professions as well. Like for example, in, in, in medicine with, with drug trials or surgeries or like how, how much of an issue do you think it is for, for other professions? So this is a, a great question. This is, um, thank you. This is a brilliant question. Thank you for asking. So at the moment I am working, um, with a group of people who, as I mentioned, are looking at uh, defining, getting a consensus, an expert consensus on the definition and classification of adverse events. And part of this is that some of us are chiropractors, some are osteopaths, some are physiotherapists, some are napropaths, naturopaths, medical doctors. So really, once you start talking about people, you start to realize that this isn't necessarily an issue that is just related to manual therapy. This underreporting of adverse events is really quite pervasive to, to steal your word across many different healthcare um, settings and professions. But where I would say the medicos do it better than us is that they have hard and fast definitions of different classifications of adverse events. I think they have quite a few and that the definition in the cancer field might be uh, different to the definition in the orthopedics field, for example. But I find that they do actually have more defined uh, ways of communicating within a certain specialty than we do within our manual therapy specialty, if I, if I can call us a specialty. Um, in addition to that, I think that it's often easier to define an adverse event when you are able to um, directly associate causation, which is a very, uh, again, difficult topic to discuss, but here I'm talking about in drug trials, which it's a placebo versus an active treatment. And then you start to be able to look at pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and then actually establish causality between um, different treatments within that drug trial. In manual therapy, it's quite difficult to do that because at the moment, most of us aren't even quantifying the dosage of the force or the speed of the force that we're actually applying to the patient. We don't know whether it was the spinal manipulation that maybe caused the soreness. It was the fact that we delivered the spinal manipulation and then they were able to move through a greater range of motion, which they hadn't been moving through before, which because they've moved through a greater range of motion, then that's what caused the soreness. Maybe it was the soft tissue work that we did or the dry needling that was performed that caused the, the soreness. Um, we don't exactly know. So I think that the medico, a lot of the medico trials are a lot easier. Um, I shouldn't say easier. That's a terrible word. It's better formed in that realm because it's potentially able to be defined more easily. I hope I haven't offended anyone by saying that. I, I think you stated it well, and I think it gets us right back to the beginning of our conversation before we started talking about the papers, that black box, right? Yeah. Now, this Absolutely. is how we elucidate the black box. Yep. We've got to pick it apart bit by bit. We've got to pick up every aspect of 
the manipulation in different patients with different um, pathophysiological mechanisms, with different practitioners, different experience levels, different training, um, whether it's the spinal manipulation, whether it is the ancillary procedures that we are applying, so soft tissue, as I mentioned, acupuncture, what is the patient doing at home? Is it the exercise that they're doing? Is it the fact that they are able to do more now that's then pushing them that little bit further? We don't know. And I think that that is really exciting because it just opens up all these different research questions that let's get our hand, let's roll our sleeves up and get our hands dirty, guys. Let's get in there and have a look and actually investigate what's going on and come up with some answers. Usually more questions than answers, but that's good. <laughs> well, Lindsay, you're going to be busy for many years to come, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. I'm happy, <laughs> happy to do so. <laughs> well, Lindsay, we're, we're getting close to the end here, uh, and I appreciate everything that you've given uh, to our audience. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us that this is the, the last question I end with uh, in every podcast episode, and that is, uh, that a goal of the podcast is to hopefully uh, motivate uh, students and practitioners at least to consider uh, research careers in chiropractic, manual therapy, what, whatever they're interested in. Could you offer any advice to these aspiring chiropractors or students who wish to become scientists? Absolutely. If I can do it, you can do it. I was going to be a full-time clinician until six months before I graduated. And right now I'm in a full-time research role. So if you want to get involved, just do it. Find something that interests you. Find a good supportive environment, a good mentor who will take you through and spend the time with you to step you through and teach you um, and educate yourself about scientific uh, procedures yeah, if you're interested in it, just do it. If Honestly, if I can do it, you can do it. Great advice. Lindsay, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed the conversation. It was, uh, it was illuminating. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Dean. Um, I look forward to, if anyone wants to send me an email, happy to do so. Reach out, happy to have a chat, go for coffee or Zoom. Zoom's a thing now, right? And yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity to come on and talk about my research and my journey so far. Awesome. I'd love to have you back uh, after a bunch more studies. We can chat again. Absolutely. They're coming. They're coming. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Chiropractic Science with Dr. Lindsay Gorrell. We'll have other great interviews coming to you soon.